0: Welcome to another episode of Seemingly Ordinary. I am back with Peter King. I've interviewed Peter several times before. Please excuse me, I'm kind of getting over a cold. They always just settle in my throat. Uh, I feel perfectly great. Um, so but Peter just finished his second year at St. Thomas Aquinas College in California. He gave me a wide variety of topics to discuss, and they include writing fiction, philosophy, theology, psychology, and art in general. But before we do any of that, I would just love to get into some basic life updates. So, Peter, how are you? I'm good. Uh, It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm very excited. Um, So, okay, yeah. How was
1: the last year for you? It was really good. Um, It did pose some challenges. Admittedly, uh, COVID kind of hit our campus pretty hard, and I was one of the people who went down with it, Um, which kind of gave an interesting start to the year, but... Uh, all in all it gave that that gave a strong opportunity to kind of like you know be set back by something outside of my control and then work extra hard to uh, keep up with my peers which was a rewarding experience
0: okay whoa you're saying like it's an opportunity i mean could you you clarify that
1: just a little bit <laughs> yeah you know it's um i think it's easy to fall into mentalities where it's like oh this thing happened to me i goodness gracious, you know, give me an excuse, give me an extra thing, this or that. Um, And it's a very natural um, mentality. And, you know, you see where it comes from, you know, this one thing happened to you beyond your control. So you should get some recompense, but it's not usually how it goes. So when that comes, when those times come, it's usually a good opportunity to kind of look into yourself. And like, I don't like the boot champs mentality but to work extra hard to counteract the negativity that's come your way
0: okay okay i guess a little bit of what i'm hearing you say is like i don't know let's say somebody gets sick and um they're going to be like out for two weeks or something like that uh it's it's not their fault you know for sure um but they're still going to be behind two weeks So Mm -hmm. I guess it's an opportunity to, I don't know, toughen up or realize that life is not fair or
1: something along those lines. Yeah. And of course you seek accommodation as you need it, but at the end of the day, accommodation is not going to do much for you. You still have to kind of work through those uh, difficulties. Okay.
0: Okay. So yeah. Okay. Let's keep going then. So you got that, you recovered, maybe you were a little bit behind. What happened next?
1: Yeah. So, uh, academically it was a, a bit of a challenging year. We, um, so uh, it's at Thomas Aquinas College. It's an integrated program, which okay. means they kind of lay out your curriculum ahead of you. You don't pick your classes or anything. You show up, you take what's given to you. Okay. Um, which some people don't love. Um, Are I, you saying I, like no electives of any kind? No, not really. You do have a fair bit of free time to okay. kind of work on your classes and to do extracurriculars beyond that. But in terms of classes, you kind of uh, do what's laid out for you. Um, okay. It's really beautiful too. It really comes together in these ways, but. Um, Anyway, that's how I ended up taking ancient astronomy for my mathematical uh, (laughs) tutorial, which uh, we started with Ptolemy, which was insane because, you know, he's one of the first guys to look up at the sky and, you know, be like, well, what's our place in the world? And, you know, he postulates ideas and argues for them. And, you know, he has a lot of mathematical equations. And, yeah, that was uh, (laughs) a a bit of a challenge. Um, Do you have to learn all that math? uh only a little bit of it there there was uh, uh some stuff that we did have to really dig in deep for but he was really technical okay. um and some people speculate that he may have been a savant with how insane his numbers were oh. um so rather than you know subject the whole class to doing that day in day out uh we uh didn't so much like there there's like the behind the scenes math and then okay. there's you know the forefront math where yeah. you see the proof we did the proofs, but we didn't do all the stuff that always led to the proof, oh, you know, the, okay. the trial
0: and error sort of things. Gotcha. Now, my understanding is, okay, this is ridiculous that you would bring this up, because when I was in high school, I actually wrote a paper on Nicholas Copernicus. Oh, no, I... is, Yeah, he's like the, the priest mathematician who, I think in the year 1543, decided that uh, he knew for sure that the earth revolved around the sun instead of the other way around. Yeah, so, he was crazy. So a lot yeah. of mathematicians give him credit for being really the first guy to mathematically show or prove, you know, that the earth actually revolves around the sun. Now, Ptolemy, May, by comparison, had just equation after equation after equation to prove basically that everything revolved around the earth. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, Jupiter, Saturn, everything out there is revolving around the earth. Um, and then the math that he had to do to explain, like, tiny little wobbles in their orbits and things like that is just crazy detailed. Oh, but, yeah. But, I mean, he had a reason for everything. He basically could prove, um, at least as far as the math goes at the time, this is my understanding, that the, uh, the Earth is stationary. And everything goes around yeah. the earth. Yeah, by the
1: numbers, it, he's he's right, and yeah, to a, to a degree, um, especially because he begins from like just you know natural observation, and he can't really refute that at the time without uh, instruments. Um, so then we worked through him's stuff, and he was insane with his ellipses and uh, not ellipses. His uh, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but he he would uh, posit that you had an orbit. Um, that like a mean point almost of like Venus was following. And then there was an orbit following that yeah. mean point. Then that was what Venus was actually doing. And, you know, you
0: he had orbits within orbits. Oh, yeah. It was insane. You know, like Venus would be orbiting the Earth. But then to explain all the wobbles, then there were orbits within the orbits to explain like all the tricky little wobbles that planets would do. Which, if you just assume they went around the sun, you would get rid of all of these. They wouldn't be wobbles anymore. They would just be natural motion. So
1: yeah, yeah. And you, you mentioned Copernicus. We we jumped next uh, to Copernicus, and that okay. was one of his major arguments. Was it's just simpler. And, yeah. you know, things uh, don't necessarily... Nature doesn't follow the most complex course it possibly can. It goes nat. It goes in an easy natural way. And so then we worked through Copernicus a little bit, and then after that we jumped to uh, Kepler. Okay. It, it yeah, okay. he, Kepler is insane. Okay, Kepler.
0: Remind me, Kepler.
1: Yeah, he he was like 1600s. Okay. He, uh, I think Galileo and Newton weren't too far off from his okay. time period. You know, yeah. if you were to look at a timeline, they'd kind of their names would be bunched near together. Um, and he was brilliant. You know, he really uh, got us a lot closer to understanding uh, the planets as we know them. With uh, you know, they planets don't follow a circular orbit; they follow an elliptical orbit, which yeah. is kind of like a a pseudo-oval, um, but he's really hard to read, I and mean, he's really full of himself, so <laughs> he, he posed some difficulties, but um, that was most of the math. Then after that, we went to some regular geometry after we finished that, but so academically there were a lot of challenges. Okay, yeah, that. that'd be a
0: big challenge right there. I mean, we started with math. Okay, then a lot of people would just like run fleeing from the room or run fleeing from the podcast, or they'd say, <laughs> okay... So when are we ever going to use this in real life, especially a bunch of guys who think that the earth is stationary and that everything revolves around, you know, the earth? Why should we spend like weeks and weeks and weeks studying this? Do you have a good answer for that?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of twofold almost. Um, uh, One of the – so kind of broadly with Thomas Aquinas College, one of the – Uh, principles of it almost is uh, pursuing knowledge for its own sake, you know. Okay. And that usually looks like speculative knowledge because you can have practical knowledge and uh, speculative knowledge. Practical knowledge, it's what it sounds like. You know, that's how you fix a car. That's how you um, work out the area of a a square, uh, you know, you work out the square footage of an area so that way you can buy the right amount of wood for that. Um, Speculative knowledge kind of gets a little more abstract. That's where um, a lot of people pursue their uh PhDs or higher education um and, and that's where a lot of our mathematical tutorial ends up following uh falling into um because it is true that in you know the uh, practical day-to-day uh occurrences I- i'm not going to need to know Ptolemy's arguments for um why the earth is apparently at the center of the universe but there's this um it's very distinctly rewarding to kind of work through those sorts of things and uh, come to a better understanding of how the world works for its okay. own sake. Um, but then we also, uh, it, it was almost like a, an examination of the development of like human knowledge okay. a, as well as some uh, scientific theories. Um, oh, like how things proceed over time. Yeah, because Ptolemy, he just wanted to know how the world worked. So he began... Uh, He didn't have telescopes. He didn't really have, like, you know, he had to rely on, like, you know, uh, naked eye observations, essentially, with a lot of calculations. Um, And he got pretty far. But, you know, he was very limited in what he could do. So then other people took what he did. You know, Copernicus looked at what he did, and he was like, yeah, Ptolemy was important, but he was wrong in these ways. Um, But Copernicus may not have been able to do that without the benefit of Ptolemy Mm -hmm. uh, positing the wrong answer. And so then Kepler can come along and, like, uh, give us uh, a better account of how things work. Okay. It turns out that uh, the uh, procedure of astronomy from Ptolemy largely gives us modern physics as we understand it today. Cause Ptolemy began from like uh, he he wanted to argue effect to cause. Uh, no, cause to effect. He he posited you know these uh, causes for how the world works, and then he said so therefore. Uh, things have to look like this. And then they didn't look like that. So he he was like, well, there's another cause here. I know it. Um, But then he gets to Kepler, and Kepler was like, that's ridiculous. We're going to look at what actually happens and then trace it back to its causes uh, in the pursuit of, um, I, I think he called it, like, astronomical physics. Okay. Yeah, and then, you know, Newton came along, and he, he gave us physics, and he largely, we're doing him next year, so I don't know much about Newton right now. Okay. Um, but my understanding is that he looked at what, a lot of what Kepler did and was able to translate that to uh, the natural world in a more universal way. Okay. So, really,
0: these guys are doing a lot for you. They're teaching you how to think. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of teaching you the history of thought. And they're also showing how, you know, we can make an assumption of some kind, like the earth is stationary, and then we can get stuck with that literally for about 2,000 years. Yeah. And then, hey, everybody's going to just go with that. That's perfectly fine. Uh, You know, if I'm some guy who's a farmer or something like that, um, you know, I really don't need, you know, too much more. I'm just willing to go with it. But the entire world could be wrong about something just because we're going with whatever somebody said in 400 BC or whenever Ptolemy lived. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just going to keep sticking with the wrong idea until somebody comes along and actually has the courage to reexamine it.
1: Yeah. It, it kind of, um, it, it's, I, I think it's one of the most uh, important instances of critical thought almost Okay. because uh, Copernicus, when he, because uh, um At Thomas at TAC, you don't read textbooks. You read what they actually wrote, and usually that's a translation. So Copernicus does a lot of stuff kind of at the beginning, being like, yeah, you know what? I'm disagreeing with everybody. You know, I I said he was crazy. Like, he was more right than Ptolemy, but he was crazy for the way he went at it. You know, he was was crazy in a good way. He was ready to be a a revolutionary. He was like, so Ptolemy said this, and he's important, but I completely disagree for these reasons, and he proceeded. And uh, really, you know, it was... It was it was like challenging the notion that gravity makes things fall down at the time. Okay, you know, if if I were to come along and put forward a really good argument for why gravity does not make things fall down or something like that, that that would kind of be the uh, equivalent for the equivalent. his time Equivalent. It'd period. be totally
0: revolutionary. Okay, now fun fact about Copernicus, just for people to know, is that he published his book. Uh, I think it was called like on the revolution of the heavenly spheres. Yeah, he published this on the day that he died. No way. No, seriously. Because, you know, and there's people out there who speculate, okay, so he was a priest, he was part of the church. Uh, you know, the church is wonderful and it's beautiful, but it wasn't just the church. It was everybody who was heavily invested in this whole idea that the earth is the center of the universe. Because, hey, after all, people are the most important thing going, mm-hmm. and we live on the earth. So our home needs to be at the center of absolutely everything. So if somebody comes along and challenges this idea, you know, that the earth is the center of everything, then doesn't that also take people out of the center of everything? Yeah. You see, I mean, so it's it's really risky. It's really <laughs> risky to do this thing. And so, so he publishes it when he's 70 years old. And, um, you know, a few people speculate, well, he wanted to get it out there. He definitely wanted to get it out there. But he also maybe didn't want to take all the aggravation. Yeah. So he's kind of waiting. Like "Uh, uh, I don't feel so good. Oh, maybe it's time to publish the book. You know.
1: (laughs) Honestly, yeah. No, because it is like because you can't kind of can see from a sense why people would want to say humanity's at the center of all things. You know. Yeah. God, you know the the, uh, image of God rests in humanity. So why shouldn't? Uh, the everything revolve around them, you know, they're his chosen people, especially if you take it from an Old Testament perspective. Right. Um, but it does also give you an opportunity to reach another theological insight that humanity is remarkable and beautiful in its own Right. But that doesn't change the fact that it's accidental to God. You know, it's one one of uh, Copernicus's arguments um, against Ptolemy. You know, Ptolemy said that okay. there was this massive sphere that was the universe. The universe was contained by a sphere, and there was somehow not anything beyond that sphere. Yeah, which yeah. It gets a little weird. Yeah. But, you know, you had this sphere. Um, Cap- and so he said that everything, you know, the container moves around the contained. But Copernicus came back at him with no the contained moves within the container. Mm. Much like how humanity, like, you know, it's largely subservient to God in these ways and you you can't put yourself at the center of everything else because there's something bigger than you.
0: Yeah, maybe it's just a lesson in humility. You know, we're supposed to understand, hey, we're actually on the third planet. We're not even on the first planet. And uh, our sun is just one sun among many. You know, so maybe like, hey, humanity is still beautiful and special and important and created by God. Comma, but you yeah. know, um, it's just a big lesson in humility. Maybe that's what it is. Absolutely. Okay, this sounds like a wild intellectual journey that you've had, and and uh, the whole school is set up with a lot of required courses. I guess what else just sort of blew your mind? Yeah, you there?
1: I um, we we examined atomic theory this okay. past year, beginning from uh, ancient Greek philosophical notions of the metaphysical atom. Democritus says that everything is composed of atoms, which are basically just really tiny versions of whatever something is. Okay. Um, maybe he, somebody else might have said that, but there are also arguments that you know there was uh, it, everything had every atom within it, but you know there were more Mr. Webker uh, atoms in Mr. Webker, so okay. therefore you get Mr. Webker rather than you know another chair. Um, <laughs>
0: okay. Do they look like little people then? A Mr. Weber atom, or, or are they spears, or like are they, I don't know, like cactus plants? What do they look like?
1: Uh, it, was, it was a little um, unclear, yeah, because okay. C- uh, spe- you go far enough back and you begin to get more fragments than uh, okay. hard writings. But you know, there's this uh, metaphysical notion that there was some sort of um, uh, constituent part of all things that was the smallest part that could not be reduced, that just made up all things.
0: Yeah, wasn't that supposed to be an atom,
1: right? Yeah. Okay. So then later... Yeah, so then um, Aristotle didn't care for that, which he, it, it's a little... Aristotle's a little hard to understand okay. uh, with some of these things, okay. particularly when he talks about the physical world. Okay. Uh, I, I tend to agree with him, but it takes a little bit to see what he's seeing and uh, saying okay. in the first place.
0: He's like one of those super intelligent, really complicated guys where your first reaction is, huh? And then your next yeah. reaction is like, no, I still don't get it. Could you re-explain it? <laughs> and then maybe like somewhere on the third or the fourth explanation, you're
1: like, wow, that's cool, Aristotle. Honestly, that's that's how it goes every time. Um, but so Aristotle uh, refuted the idea of the atom in okay. favor of the element with just some sort of, you know, Fire, earth, air, water.
0: Oh. Um, Okay, so, like, fire's an element, air's an element, worth's an element, or water, excuse me, (laughs) and earth is an element, according to Aristotle.
1: Yeah, and it was, um, it it wasn't, you know, you've got your Avatar The Last Airbender show where it takes that really literally. For Aristotle, there was more of a metaphysical uh, bent to it. So he didn't literally think that everything was made of, like, you know, the dirt of the earth or something like that. Okay. but so then that uh, goes along for a while, and you know people generally hold that the you know things probably aren't uh, composed of atoms, but um, but
0: they're composed of earth, air, yeah, there, there's wind a, and fire,
1: yeah, there's elements at work. Um, but you reach this uh, point where people are wondering where heat comes from and where fire comes from, oh, and, right? Uh, you know, air pressure, gas density, all of these things, and it, it was <laughs> it's a pretty complicated and intricate. Um, I'm being honest, I I need to brush up on it, but um, essentially through the, uh, people argued that heat was a substance for a little bit, and that got refuted, Um, but uh, the the refutation of heat being a substance, which that substance was called phlogiston, it was weird. Um, Phlogiston? Yeah, it it was like a Greek word. Okay. Um, Sounds
0: like a drink. I'll have it in a glass of (laughs) phlogiston. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, sir, you've had enough phlogiston. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, no, but yeah. So then you've got your uh, flagstones refuted, and then that kind of brings people to uh, understand that uh, there, there's um, more than one kind of just air. People have for a while thought there was just air, and there was no part to air. Air just existed. Okay, um, but pure turned, air. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then it turns out, you know, you've got gases and you have uh, air Oxygen, that's nitrogen, you. yeah, carbon dioxide, etc. Exactly. And you um it, you really see that kind of be brought out by this um guy named Lavoisier. Okay. Uh, he lived during the uh, French Revolution and unfortunately was uh, killed. But Jeez. he he was one of the most brilliant men to ever live. Um he helped disprove the notion that water was uh, composed of just water. He showed okay. that it was Uh, hydrogen and oxygen and helped discover... I I think he discovered hydrogen and helped um, make this uh, extensive argument with his colleagues for a uh, universal nomenclature for chemistry. Okay. For for a while science would have these really specific outdated terms uh, like phlogiston. Okay. Uh, After a while phlogiston began to refer to like, you know, um, certain types of gases, but that wasn't super clear or you would have fixed air or you would have breathable air. But so Lavoisier... And it made this argument that no, we need to like look at the uh, things that compose uh, everything. Uh, we need to look at those elements, okay. which um, th- that began to make him argue for the uh, atom. He kind of lo- took the atom and element hand in hand. You know, he did. The, the ancient Greeks see- kind of seemed to see them as like you know mutually exclusive, but uh, maybe not Democritus. Uh, but Lavoisier kind of took those hand in hand um, and posited this definition of the atom and argued for a, a universal nomenclature. Which led to uh, people refuting, like, you know, no, fire's this, you know, earth isn't just earth, air isn't just air, water isn't just water. Um, And that led to, uh, through using Archimedean principles and the uh, physics, uh, density, uh, weight of gas, all this stuff, um, they were able to come to the notion that there is there is an atom of some sort. It might not be the metaphysical atom, but we have uh, chemical atoms composed of these various elements and gives you the periodic table and all this stuff.
0: Okay, again, I'm just sort of floored by the idea that, okay, so Aristotle comes up with an idea and uh, says, hey, there's like four elements, et cetera. And that's maybe in about 340 BC, something like that. And then it takes until the early 19th century, the French Revolution. It takes like 2,200 years for somebody to come along basically and say, well, no, I mean, water is not, you know, just the key element. You can actually reduce it down further. You know, it's made up out of hydrogen, which I just discovered, and oxygen. Uh I just am amazed at how people can get stuck on the same wrong idea. In this case, literally for two thousand plus years. No,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it's it's, uh, it, it's really interesting. I, th- I think part of it really came from the uh, uh, the popularization of the experiment, um, especially with like uh, Pascal in the seventeen okay. hundreds. You know, people. Uh, some people took the idea of the experiment too far, and they said that the only way that you can know anything in, within the realm of science is exclusively by experiment, mm. and you have to bend reason to your experiments. Okay. Which, I, you know, I don't love that idea, but if you take reason and experimentation hand uh, hand in hand and really get your hands dirty with the world, um, especially with the uh, advances of, in technology that were made uh, kind of around that time, I, I think that was part of what happened. Uh, people... Um, electricity played a huge role in the decomposition of uh, these uh, uh, substances, which helped people to discover the elements which composed them. People for the longest time couldn't uh, harness electricity in the way they needed to. So you've kind of, uh, you have this notion of the experiment coming about, and then you have technology kind of rising to meet the notion of the experiment. So you take those things, and you have some, you know, genius like Lavoisier come along. Okay. uh, You know, he he loves philosophy, he loves science, um, and he kind of, like, brings it all together and helps kickstart these uh, various uh, advances in science?
0: Well, here's kind of what I'm hearing you say. You're saying maybe a lot of things preceded by pure reason or deductive reasoning for a very long time. But the problem with that is if I start off with the wrong idea in the first place, and then if I just use logic and deduction, then I'm going to end up in the wrong conclusion because I started from the wrong spot. Yeah. So then maybe in the early 19th century, people are having more technology because electricity can be hardest. And then they're seeing all kinds of things be created and be done that they just never really thought could be possible before. And so then people are saying, whoa, how did you do that? How did you invent that thing? And so then people had to sort of reason backwards. Well, we just saw this thing. Uh, Everybody said it was impossible for 2000 years, but it turns out that it's not that you can actually build one of these objects here And so I guess now we should probably figure out, well, how did that actually happen? Mm -hmm. So I guess one's reasoning forward and the other one's reasoning backward. Um, And I guess if we use them both, then... I guess we can keep inventing things, learning things, get closer to the truth. That's what yeah. I'm hearing you say. Is yeah. that accurate?
1: Yeah, because it always helps to have some sort of principle to begin by, but you need to also examine the supposed consequences of that principle and the reality of the situation. Okay. So if those two line up, then you can count on your principles pretty well, but you know, if there is some sort of discrepancy, then you need to go back and reevaluate does the universe really, you know, spin in a circle? Is the earth really at the center of of everything? Yeah. Back to basics,
0: back to very first principles Mm -hmm. and ask like, well, do we really need this? Okay. So it sounds to me like this was a year of maybe having your mind get blown. Yeah. I mean, we've been somewhat abstract. We've talked about, you know, the revolution of the heavenly spheres and Mm -hmm. now we've been talking about atoms and elements, but Maybe we'll let's do one more along this lines. Uh, or you could just hop straight into, was this the year of you getting your mind blown? And what effect has that had on you as a person?
1: Yeah. Now, I think um, this was absolutely a mind-blowing year. Okay. Um, I, I think, you know, it's easy to take atoms for granted. You're like, oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. of atoms. For sure. But
0: my y- chemistry y- instructor mm-hmm. says, oh, we have atoms, you know, and shows me the periodic chart and... Why should I question that?
1: Right. It it is so easy. I
0: mean, okay, have I ever seen an Atom? Well, no you know, mm-hmm. but why should I question it?
1: Yeah. It, it's, you know, you, you get given, you, you know, some sort of authority gives you this idea and you're like, well, why not? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 16. I'm 17. Right. I, I'm not going to jump. Right.
0: I've got bigger problems. My yeah. parents are crazy. <laughs> uh, nobody's going to go with me to the prom. Uh, I can barely hold on to my job at Sombreros. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like I, I just got cut from the football team. You know, like people have got big enough problems you know so if the instructor who seems like a really friendly person and has my best interest at heart tells me yeah there's atoms and then beyond atoms there's quarks you know and there's protons and electrons sure sure mm-hmm. okay you bet
1: yeah because even if even if the what's being said is right which i i like to think yeah. it generally yeah, is yeah, right yeah, yeah. you know you end up doing yourself the disservice of not like following the lines of mm. reasoning that kind of Like not going back further.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because just to stick with atoms for a second, I suppose after atoms, people asked, yeah, but what's the atom made out of? Mm -hmm. You know? And so then people were like, well, it looks like protons, neutrons, and electrons. And then it takes a while to figure out what those are. Then somebody goes, yeah, but is that an irreducible particle? Like, is that as small as you can go? And people are like, well, I don't know. It looks like maybe there's quarks. Like maybe there's so many quarks per proton and so many quarks per neutron and, and so on. You know, so like mm-hmm. people are like always kind of looking for the irreducible particle. Yeah. The problem with the irreducible particle is, is that the minute it has any sort of distinguishing characteristics at all, like let's say it's a silver ball. Well, can't I like take a ball and cut it in half?
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: so I mean, is there an irreducible particle Maybe there isn't.
1: Yeah. Which it, it's just, and uh, I think that's uh, one thing that uh, one of uh, one of the guys who came after Lavoisier said is like, you know, it, we can't know for certain whether or not there is, but we still should look. We still mm. need to proceed as far as we possibly okay. can. Okay. We just keep looking, keep looking,
0: keep looking. Mm hmm. Okay. So then eventually they come up with you know the electron microscope, which can see things that are really small, but then maybe we need to come up with another microscope that can see things a million times smaller than that, yeah, who really knows, yeah, yeah, okay, that's kinda wow, okay, so yeah, keep talking to me through the year then
1: yeah, so um those those were two of the like major you know okay mind boggling events, but um. There was a, a fair bit of uh, Saint Augustine involved. Who, okay, he 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 talks a lot about uh, grace and the notions of grace within Catholicism. You know, you, and it's that was that was insane. It was a little exhausting. Um, and you know, Augustine had uh, he had quite a backstory before okay, yeah. he was a Catholic priest. Yeah, give people a little bit of Saint
0: Augustine's backstory. Yeah, so because um, I think you know, if you don't know, if you hear saints, then you just think
1: pious person who prays all day. Yeah, yeah. Augustine was, um, he he was a borderline hedonist growing up. Um, He wasn't baptized for the longest time because there was this idea at the time that um, when he was born, you know, you want to wait before you baptize your kid because you get the most bang for your buck. You clean off all the sin all at once, which (laughs) did not do him any favors. It kind of, you know, make me holy later mentality. Oh, I see.
0: So I could be like a real wild child, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, maybe up
0: until, I don't know, the age of. Eighty-five or something, and then I'm kind of like, "Oh, baptize me now." Yeah, gotcha. Yeah,
1: which like, wipes the slate clean. Yeah, and that we, was the theory, basically. And okay. you know, it's it's kind of risky, right? And it's you know, there's some notion to it. It's like, I mean, yeah, God is merciful. God uh-huh, will take care of all uh-huh. that. Maybe you shouldn't do it
0: that way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That'd be like, I don't know if your mom is a very forgiving person. So you just perpetually like wipe your muddy feet on the white carpet, you know, the whole yeah. time because you know, well, mom's going to forgive me because she's a very loving, forgiving person. Yes, she is. But you're also sort of like wiping your dirty feet on the white carpet yeah. all the time. It's just- so. So I guess I don't know. That's the hedonistic lifestyle of Saint Augustine.
1: Yeah, Augustine. He he fathered some children. He, okay. He uh, enjoyed his drink. Okay. He uh you know he he was crazy for the longest time, and then he kind of had this epiphany. Uh, and I, I think he was in his twenties, thirties, maybe, um, with his friends, where he you know I think it was reading Paul and hearing stories of great faith that he he wanted that more than anything, mm. and, and after that he went. All in, he fully converted. He became a bishop. He wrote extensively um, about uh, the uh, uh, church doctrine, and he helped uh, write, you know, about how you can interpret scripture. And he presented his own interpretations of scripture. And he uh, argued with a lot of uh, heretics, and um, he. Reading him can be a little challenging because he was uh, a rhetorician before he was a Catholic. Okay. Um, so he really, you know, you read him and he develops his ideas very slowly with a lot of repetition to really get it in his, his, as deep as he can into your mind, which is a, a little boring sometimes. Okay. But he was incredibly important because he... Um, Uh, kind of gave us, uh, he clarified ideas of uh, predestination. You know, people say that we don't believe in predestination as Catholics, which in a sense we don't. You know, we're not Calvinists. Uh, God doesn't, you know, uh, create anybody and condemn them to hell. But God does, however, um, Augustine argues... um, he he selects people to be saints. He's like, I want this person. I, I'm going to give this person out the gate the grace to live uh, a saintly life to lead other people to me. Uh, you know, with them. Um, and so he helped clarify those ideas. And uh, but in those ideas, what he really came to was the essential uh, how essential grace was to living a good life. Um, human humanity has a fallen nature. You know, you, you look at Genesis, humanity is fallen, and you know it, it suffers from concupiscence and all these uh, uh, natural inclinations that make it really hard to live a virtuous life. Okay. Um, so you really have to rely on grace from God to uh, live a virtuous life. And that was uh, one of the biggest things that Augustine gave us was his doctrine on grace, um, which at first can be uh, intimidating to understand because he wrote so much. And, you know, he also like wrote The City of God where he just wrote and wrote and wrote but it, it's beautiful and essential, but not always the most fun to read. Okay. Um, yeah, so that was part of the year. Um, okay.
0: So what, help people out just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, define grace and then define
1: concupiscence. Yeah, so grace, um, really it's the uh, gift from God to live well. Okay. At, at its most basic. Um, and it's... So is Augustine saying I really can't do that on my own? Yeah, it, w- uh, yeah. According to uh, Augustine, uh, and I'm inclined to agree. You, you really can't do anything um, morally worthwhile without mm. God's help. You, you okay. can, in some sense, uh, live according to you know societal standards and do goods in a secular sense. But if you want to live a truly good life, for the sake of living a good life you really need grace to come into the the equation. Okay, Um, and I'm
0: hearing I can get so far on my own, and then after that, basically, I really have to rely on God to get any further.
1: Yeah, like if you want to be a decent citizen, you can probably do that on your own. Okay. But if you want to be a good person, you really need God to do any of that. Okay, and then, okay, I think I got mm -hmm. it. What's
0: concupiscence, then? Yeah,
1: concupiscence is really the natural inclination to sin. It's, you know, like... When somebody says don't do this thing, and you know okay. you want to do that thing, that's gonna keep us in Like Somebody way. says I don't know, like uh, don't touch, like the uh,
0: the I don't know the the dinosaur in the museum. You know, you could make it fall down. You know, yeah. like in the Far Side cartoon or something, like the guy like touches the dinosaur and then there's like a big pile of bones lying on the floor and he's got this sheepish grin on his face. You know, yeah. kind of like that's like, you kind of want to touch the dinosaur. There's a sign that says, do not touch, but you kind of
1: want to touch it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. It, exactly. It's it's that, or it's like the, you know, this feels so good, so why shouldn't I? Okay, um? I'm on a diet and then somebody mentions the words
0: chocolate cake, you know, <laughs> and so then concupiscence comes in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... Not a sin, but, you know, it gives you kind of the idea, basically. Yeah. Okay, so it's just our natural tendency to break the rules or rebellious or just something along those lines. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And so then... What did Augustine say about concupiscence that we could only resist yeah. it with God's grace or what did he say
1: yeah he um you know because he kind of spoke from his own personal life experience okay. where he would be inclined to do bad things for no other reason than carnal pleasure or for the sake of doing something who's kind of bad um, okay. and it was never like killing anybody but right, you know, he, right like his when he was a teenager his neighbor had a bunch of pears and he was like I want it I want those pears so he and his friends stole the pears and then they threw the pears away. Ah, they didn't even eat them. They didn't. They, they, like, took a bite of one, and they were, like, all, like, you know, they weren't ripe yet. So they were like, oh, these pears uh, are, are terrible, so we're going to get rid of them. Um, that's, so, like, doubly bad. Yeah. Was, <laughs> he, he, he talks about it a lot in the Confessions. Okay. He's like, oh, I'm terrible. These pears, these pears. Yeah, it really made strange. a big impact on him. Yeah. No, honestly. So he um, he kind of takes that personal experience with concupiscence and um, recognizes that, uh, humanity necessarily needs God. You know, with the fall, uh, they were divorced from the, uh, ideal state of what it is to be humanity. Okay. Um, and, you know, temptation and sin entered into the equation. So he kind of examines, you know, the, uh, uh the biblical account of those things alongside his personal experience. And, um, he then looks to, uh, primarily, uh, Paul, who he refers to as the apostle in his epistles in the, uh, New Testament. And, uh really, uh as well as what Christ says and what the Holy Spirit says, um, and really uh kind of he he answers the question that he has the the questions he has about grace and about what man can do on his own uh with paul's answers mm. um, saying that you do need to rely upon God for all things. okay, and, I can't uh, do yeah. it on my own. yeah,
0: okay. now, this reminds me a little bit of Carl Jung and his idea of the shadow. And are you familiar with this at all? Uh, not a ton with The okay. Shadow. Okay. Well, well, okay. I think um, we don't necessarily have to discuss Young and The Shadow for me to maybe kind of get this point across. But, but um, okay, so Carl Jung was a psychologist, and he lived around the same time as Freud. Mm-hmm. And he went in a very different direction from Freud. And Young uh, had this belief that people have a shadow. I guess some people would call it a dark side. But... I think he calls it a shadow and not a dark side for a reason. Of course, it may just be translation because he didn't write in English. In any case, like uh, you have your basic personality that, you know, you go to work, home, and in the store, and then you, like, do nice things for your family and take care of the dog and things like that. And uh, then your shadow side is maybe it's all the stuff that we suppress, You know, it could be like our our very negative impulses. It could be like our aggressive impulses, our carnal impulses, uh, you know, like, et cetera. You kind of get the idea. Um, And then I think Jung basically believed that we had to really understand and acknowledge our shadow or uh, it would not be integrated. And he's not saying indulge it. You know, far from it. Because what if your shadow is highly aggressive and wants to go out there and beat people up? You know, so he's he's definitely not wanting people to just indulge their shadow. But I think he wants them to thoroughly understand their own personal shadow because otherwise it can't really be successfully integrated into your personality and then it will just pop out at very, very awkward moments. And I'm, I'm just kind of wondering, is this similar or different? Yeah, than, um, than these notions of grace versus concupiscence.
1: Yeah, because I, I think a lot of where concupiscence comes from, in a person does tend to be, um, you know, it's it's derived from their virtues as well as from what they're naturally inclined to desire. Okay, it's so more often than not when you do something bad, or you know, in the Catholic terminology, when you sin, you're usually seeking something better. Yes, you know, you you know, somebody engages in, you know, they. They, they, they're, they're gluttonous, because right, right, right. They they're, want they're good upset. food. Yeah, right. they, they want good food or they're uh, emotionally unwell. so they somehow try to uh, achieve those goods uh, by in overindulging. Right. By food. They're pursuing, they're
0: trying to pursue something that's good. Mm-hmm. They're trying to either get good food or they're trying to comfort themselves something their motive yeah. is good
1: yeah and the uh, the motive they have and the goal they have it's usually derived from some aspect of their personality something that they do naturally desire
2: mm, um, okay
1: and so then if you're going to if there is a corruptive element in humanity it's not going to you know introduce unknown variables to this person it's going to take what's already there it's going to take you know my inclination to enjoy good food okay and warp that.
0: Okay, so concupiscence is taking a good desire and warping it. Yeah. Got it, got it. Okay, okay. Um, So it was the year of having your mind blown. On a personal level, how did the year go for you? Like, did you decide on a major or change your major or meet, like, a new collection of friends? Did you get involved in plays? What what, what did you do on a personal level?
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty good year for that um, because it was challenging with, like, you know, sickness and with some of the academics, but that really kind of forced me to, you know, go further than I have previously before. Mm. Um, you know, the freshman year, I liked Thomas Aquinas College, but I was still a little on the fence in some regards. You know, okay. it's kind of a... It's... it's an unorthodoxly orthodox college. It yeah. really goes all the way back as far as it can with, you know, uh, you learn through the Socratic method rather than mm-hmm. uh, lectures, which is basically okay. your teacher poses questions and everybody talks it out.
0: Okay. It's, now, I, now I have a question about that. Yeah. If that's going on, that's really interesting because, okay, I really recommend that people read a book called One L by Scott Turow. Scott Turow is usually a novelist, but this was his true story of going through Harvard Law School. And so I read this book and I thought, This is the most brutal experience that I've ever read about in terms of school. Uh, You are expected to do all the reading. And not only that, but have the reading so well done that if the professor were to come in and just, like, grill you personally in front of the entire class, could be a large lecture class, uh, the professor might grill you personally for, like, 30 minutes at a time, you know, asking you question after question after question about the reading. So, I mean, if you read it once, chances are you are not going to be able to survive a grilling like that. Uh, I'm just wondering, like, how far did the professor take? Because Socratic just basically means Q and A. Like mm-hmm. the instructor does nothing but ask questions for the most part. Yeah. Um. I maybe occasionally they make statements, but usually they ask you questions, mm-hmm. and then your your knowledge is revealed and your lack of knowledge is exposed.
1: Yeah. It it doesn't go quite so far. As that's the, that's uh, probably good. Yeah. It's um. It, it's more of a, a collaborative process with the Socratic method, where okay. the uh, teacher, uh, the, or we call them tutors there. Uh, the tutor does have a pretty solid understanding of what's going on in the, te- in the text. But, he, you know, the tutor, uh, he doesn't want to just tell you. He wants you to kind of, you know, okay. reach that. And maybe you've already begun to reach those conclusions in your own time. Or maybe you haven't. So you go into class and he poses an opening question. Mm. And everybody begins to discuss it. And, you know, you're like, well, on page 57, uh, Plato says this, which I think gives this notion. You okay. Know, and, um, and so he kind of like he, he guides the discussion a little bit so you're not totally far off. Um, fortunately, you reach a certain point there where everybody's pretty far on the right track. So you don't really go horribly wrong that often. You know, he doesn't okay. really need to have a guiding hand all over everything all the time. Um, but so uh, rather than reeling, you would, because you are expected to do the full reading to meaningfully participate with the yes. class. Yes. Um, but it's more of like this, uh, you come to it with your own questions or your own difficulties with the text and um, or your own ideas, and then you kind of work it out with your instructor and uh, the rest of your classmates. Okay, okay, okay. And then how did you like that? I, I really love it. Um, I, you, you, Because not only do you like get personally acquainted with the text and have to pr- uh, formulate your own ideas, but you have to test them against other people. and you, mm. have, uh, you, you take feedback into account, but you also defend your idea and you modify your idea. You throw away your idea and pick up a new idea or you come up with a new one. Um, so it really forces you to participate, uh, actively in, uh, developing ideas.
0: Okay. So there's really no, just sitting back like half asleep in the class and I don't know, checking Facebook and mm-hmm. things like, or whatever it is people do. Um, I don't think they check Facebook at, in your age bracket anymore, but, <laughs> but I, I've sat in on a few college classes where, you know, I sat in the back and there were, 20 screens up and people were looking at facebook i found that very disturbing to be entirely honest so i'm i'm glad that that you're having this experience um okay what else what
1: else was just amazing and wonderful i um, one thing that was i i really love to creatively write and okay um, okay i've had a challenge keeping up with that just with my workload
0: are we going to shift in the creative writing for now
1: uh probably. Okay. Uh, okay. Good. I good. Uh, I got to uh, meet some friends on campus who also love creative writing. Oh. We uh, just started getting together on a regular basis. Okay. You know, like, uh, what we did uh, after a little bit was meeting up every two weeks with okay. a short story written from a certain prompt, uh, and you know it had to be five pages long with this uh, specific formatting guide so that way you couldn't cheat the system. Okay. Almost, and uh, we read them to each other, and that was wonderful. You know, I was. I, I was made to write. I was writing with people I uh, liked. Uh, you know, I liked what they wrote. I liked their feedback. And it was just a great time. It was, you know, a great way to be productive. Is, is this voluntary? Is this something that you guys are just doing on your own? Or yeah. is this part of a
0: class? A total free time. Oh, wow. Okay. And how committed? Because I, I think writing groups are difficult in the sense that people say, you know, I've been so busy. I just
1: didn't get the work done. Yeah. So, I mean, how was it? It was uh, really great. We um, we had a core group of four people. Okay. Um, so for the most part, we all, uh, if we didn't totally finish the writing uh, assignment, as it were, uh, we did our very best and would talk about that. Um, and some other people did come in and out, and they usually did a good job of uh, participating. But with our core group, we were able to, because um, we were... Because we we were all friends, and we were personally invested in each other and in ourselves, and we liked what we were writing about. Mm. So we would all show up and, like, had every reason uh, to put our very best uh, foot forward and to put the most that we could into our writings.
0: Okay. Let's let's be uh, super helpful and practical for people who want to do creative writing then. Um, How often do you work? Do you set up some sort of a regular schedule? Um, What do you do when life gets in the way?
1: Yeah, so uh, at Tac anyway, while I was there, I would work on it. Um, so I uh, I would shoot for five pages of my short story. So okay. when I had a deadline like that, I would work to get it done as quickly as I could. I, w- I would sit down and try to just bust out the five pages, and then I go back through and I revise. And you know, I um, as part of it, it's really easy when you're writing creatively to get in your own head almost and you, you're writing this idea or you're writing this bit of dialogue and you're like, is that as good as it could be? Is that? Right? Oh,
0: do you mean to sit there and criticize and nitpick yourself to Yeah. Death? Okay. Yeah. I guess there's uh, what do they call it? Like the Mozart versus the Beethoven, um, you know, way of composition. Beethoven supposedly would write a line, scratch it out, get very, very frustrated, Uh, write another line, scratch that out, get even more frustrated. Uh, And and then this would just go on and on and on and on. And it just apparently was torture for the poor guy. Um, I I don't know if he actually wrote this way. I've just heard this described. And then Mozart, on the other hand, supposedly would get these brilliant ideas and then just transcribe them. Mm -hmm. And boom, and he's done. And he's got this beautiful piece that... Everybody loves and lasts for centuries, and yeah. and isn't it great to be Mozart's? Basically,
1: yeah. honestly, yeah. I, I guess um, personally, yeah. I try to. I don't want to call myself Mozart, but uh-huh. now and again, when you do actively try yeah. to make art, you will get moments of inspiration. Okay. And so, for me personally, when I have those moments of inspiration, it immediately goes into a journal. Okay. Or um, I immediately begin to work on it if I have the time to you know bust that out as far as I could. But even when I don't have moments of inspiration, you know, when I have an idea okay. or uh, a project that I want to do, it's, you know, you just have to write the first draft mm. and you have to write fearlessly. You can't get in your own head. Okay. You can't be like Beethoven in that moment. You have to just write the whole thing. Okay. Um,
0: write the whole thing first mm-hmm. before you start nitpicking yourself to death yeah. with criticism.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then... After you write the thing, that's when you can have a bit more of a Beethoven mentality. You kind okay. of look at the mechanics of a story, or what you're trying to say, or how the plot uh, conveys this or that thing, and then you really begin to nitpick things. But not—you uh, don't want to kill the story. But you know, you you can get a little mean with yourself and be like, "Well, yeah. is, is this really as good as it can be?"
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I look. I kind of think that makes sense. I think it makes sense to really not do too much criticism until you have a final draft. And the reason is, is because I, I've, I've been that person who would write a sentence and then scratch it out and then rewrite that sentence and then scratch that out and then write in this very, very painful way. But the problem is, is that let's say I do finish the five-page story or whatever the case may be, how do I know I'm not just going to go through and scrap the first two whole pages? So mm-hmm. all that slave slaving over like that first sentence to just nail that first sentence. Um, but what if the whole first two pages have to go? What, yeah. what if the real story was pages three through seven? And then that's my five-page story right there. Maybe the first two pages were just me clearing my throat to get started. But I didn't know that until I produced the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like writing a rough draft is like somebody giving you a house and a house can be broken down. Uh it could be falling apart. Uh it could be very messy. But the thing is, dude, you've got a house. You yeah. know, before you had nothing, you know, you were homeless. Now you've got an actual house. You can fix this thing up, you know. Mm-hmm. And maybe that does go through 10 drafts or 10 remodels, you know. But that's fine because hey, you've got that initial thing and let's just See how good we can make it. Exactly. Okay, that's how you
1: think too. I think too is yeah. I, I certainly do certain degree because you just you can't you can't make something good that doesn't exist yet. Right. So you need to you need to let the story exist in the first place. Okay. And, uh, after that, then you really can just kind of go back and you know maybe the story doesn't pick up for a while and you know nobody needs to see the beginning that you wrote. You know. Okay. That's. Um, Neil Gaiman, who's one of my favorite authors, yeah. uh, he talks about the first versus second draft. The first draft just needs to exist. You know, okay. you finish it at all costs, and then it's done. With the second draft, you go back and you make it look like you knew what you were doing the whole way
0: through. Mm. Um, you know, Hemingway yeah. said something very similar. He said, get to the ending as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And by that, I don't think he meant right two-page stories. I think what he meant was, is produce that first draft as soon as you humanly can so that you know what you're working with.
1: Exactly. Because you have no idea how much editing you need to do or will want to do until it exists.
0: Well, let me ask uh, a few more practical questions. How often do you write and do you choose a particular time of day?
1: Yeah, so... Uh, now that I'm at home, you know, I don't have the benefit of the two weeks uh, writing group because uh, that just kind of made me get it done. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Deadline. Deadline. Yeah. So now ho- at home, um, I wrote up a schedule for myself recently where uh, every day I want to do an hour of creative writing. Okay. And it's only creative writing. And, you know, I don't necessarily have to write during that hour. Maybe I think about the idea, but I can't do anything but mm. write during You're that hour. You're either
0: writing or thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. And exactly. And there's
0: nothing else. Yeah. There's no, like, oh, I don't know, go
1: outside or surf the Internet or any of those things. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, it, it – yeah, exactly. It's complete devotion to that, so – that's what I, um, you know, I haven't been the best at it so far this summer. It's been uh, very busy, but. We're um, early
0: in the summer. Yeah. Um,
1: and, you know, you came back and, uh, yeah, I think you're a pretty busy guy right now, aren't you? Yeah, admittedly. Um, but it's at the very much at the forefront of my mind, you know, kind of like settling into this okay. uh, routine of like, you know, once a day, once an hour. Okay. You know, you just write for one hour. Do you pin down which hour of the day, for example, from yeah. two to three or something? I think I think that helps. Um, that's what I uh, like to try to do because then you have like a, a set routine, and you know you almost like uh, you're the way you think, the way you act, the way your body moves, okay. kind of gets accustomed to that. You, it's you're in a very different mode of being yes. when you're cleaning versus when you're writing. Yes. Um. So then your body kind of gets used to like you know. A rhythm. We're, yeah, we're getting. Oh, it's writing time. All okay. right, it's time to sit down and write. Now, now I'm
0: being super particular here, but is there, uh, for a guy your age, you're 20, is
2: that right? Yeah.
0: Okay, do you do this in the mornings, afternoons, or evenings? When do you think this would work best?
2: Yeah, I... Because a lot of
0: older writers, uh, but, but... people's body clocks are different as they age. A lot of older writers will insist on mornings.
1: Yeah, I would personally love to write in the mornings. Okay. Um, unfortunately, it's not the most practical right now. So I'm kind of, uh, I go for a more early afternoon sort of deal okay. after I get some chores out of the way. Um, some mornings are more workout, wake up, you know, get your day going, okay. pray, intellectual reading, you know, kind of, uh, un- I can't justify making creative writing the, uh, the pinnacle of my day quite yet. Gotcha. I've got, I'm still kind of being formed with my education, so it's uh, intellectual writing, uh, not into, intellectual reading and prayer in the forefront, but as I'm more formed, you know, you can kind of... yeah. As Honestly, for anybody, as uh, something like creative writing or a hobby becomes more... Um, important to you or as it becomes more realistic as a career or something you really can justify moving it up further in your day or putting more time and focus into that um and you're never going to get there if you don't write in the first place so if you want to be a full-time artist you got to start making art and then you make your art a little bit better and you spend a little bit more time in the afternoon they can spend extra time in the afternoon as you get better and you can make that a bigger part of your day that's how you start your day uh, whichever, et cetera, uh, yeah.
0: Do you want to be a full-time writer? I would love to. Okay, okay, because last time we spoke, there were a few other things that were also in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, what's all in the mix, he says? Yeah,
1: so uh, whatever I do, I want writing to okay. be a part of it. Um, I also, in terms of career, uh, because unfortunately it's not always the most practical to pay the bills with writing exclusively, <laughs> what did it were. um, I've really been considering uh, uh, additional education after TAC. Um, Okay. I'm pursuing a liberal arts degree, which is, I I think, uh, yeah, it's it's the only thing that's offered at TAC with its uh, program. Um, So after my uh, liberal arts degree, I'd like to go get a master's of fine arts in uh, creative writing. Okay. Um, Like Iowa Writers Workshop, something like that, if if possible. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's one of those two-year, two-, three-year programs. You get a stipend, you write. Um, and then after that, uh, you are qualified in some places to teach as right. a writing professor with that, um, But which I might do that. But if that's not what I'd like to do, um, then I'm also interested in pursuing like a Ph.D. in philosophy, theology or psychology. Oh, wow. Yeah, with philosophy or theology, you know, you just you go teach. Um, for psychology, you do clinical practice and you teach at the same time. And okay. with all of those, then you can usually do writing with them. Okay, okay. Um, we're going to be
0: into areas that I don't know a lot about necessarily. This mm-hmm. is going to be very fun for me, I think. But uh, now that I kind of have a picture of what you would like to do for your future, writing's going to be a part of it somehow or another. Uh, you're going to get an MFA if you possibly can. And you are thinking about a PhD in philosophy, theology, or psychology. Yeah. So let's talk about one of those three, maybe all of those three. But where would you like to start?
1: Yeah, I guess. Um, a PA, uh, well, I guess with psychology, I should uh, cl- clarify. I, I don't think it's technically a PhD, but a PsyD, which is like spelled like I think P S Y D. Okay. Um, I'm not entirely sure as to why that is the case, but I, I think it has to do with the more practical uh, aspect to educating yourself in psychology versus you know when you're studying philosophy all day long it's a very speculative process yeah um but so yeah with um with with like the a doctorate in uh, psychology there's yeah. um this college divine mercy university okay uh, that is taking tac grads historically um that i'm considering as one of those options uh you know you go there uh, with TAC, since there isn't a robust psychology uh, tutorial or anything, you do read some Jung and Freud, okay, um, but not a ton. You know, the uh, bread and butter, that place is philosophy and theology. Um, you know, you do like a, a class to kind of get caught up to speed on modern psychology. And then okay. after that, you just go full force with uh, studying as much as you can in psychology and doing clinical practice. And, mm, uh, clinical practice. Away. Yeah. So
0: would you become like a counselor or a therapist with this? Yeah. Okay,
1: I I think um, there was one grad that I spoke to. She uh, at this point now that she has her doctorate, she spends a lot of time in the classroom. But while she was getting her doctorate and before she was put into the classroom, uh, she would spend a lot of time in the uh, office with uh, her patients. Oh, Uh, okay, yeah, okay.
0: You could turn it to Jordan Peterson. Doctors, yeah. You know, <laughs> where you just kind of know everything about psychology, and you just sort of know everything about people, and then you have patients. But then maybe you're also teaching some university classes.
1: Yeah, I mean, what a life that would be! That would be. I uh, I wasn't too familiar with him until recently, but I picked up his Twelve Rules. Um, I I don't know to what extent I agree with all of his ideas. Oh, but sure. I I like the questions he's asking, and I like how he goes about it. You know, and I think they're probably be a little bit more that i'd agree with him than i disagree with him on um but he's very fascinating oh yeah yeah i I think we need more jordan petersons right now even uh not just for psychology we just and not even with his own like you know ideological grounding just there need to be more like intellectual people in the you know the forefront of the public who kind of help encourage that thinking because even if you just decide that you disagree with jordan peterson well, you've made more strides than somebody who doesn't know about him. Right, right.
0: Well, I mean, he's a deep thinker. He's well-read. So, like, whether you agree with him or not, wouldn't it be great to be a deep thinker And to be well-read.
1: Exactly.
0: And to be able to articulate yourself as clearly as he can articulate
1: himself. Yeah. I think that's probably his greatest virtue is that he inspires other people to think about these things and to read about them and to express their own ideas.
0: Okay. Um, I do, too. I do, too. Yeah. Because, yeah, he's very big on free speech. And free speech implies free thought. So, Mm -hmm. which implies, hey, you're doing your own thinking for yourself. So, Yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
1: Yeah, because free speech, it's useless if you don't have anything to express in the first place. That's probably true.
0: I'll have to think about that for a little (laughs) while. Yeah. So, but yeah, when people do finally have something to express, then it would just be great if they were allowed to express it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so psychology, uh, if you're going to be a counselor or a therapist, are you attracted to any particular age group or... Uh, I guess, manner of living. For example, single versus married or I don't know. You know, you could pick.
1: Yeah, I think um, I, I'm not too set on any ages. Um, okay. I am uh, interested, though, in uh, personality disorders and uh, trauma, particularly mm. a borderline personality disorder. Because, okay. you know, you, you hear the uh, sensationalized headline of a, a psychopathic serial killer in the news. Okay. You can't help but wonder how did that person turn out the way they are? Yeah, it, like,
0: why is that person a serial killer?
1: Yeah, and it, and it turns out that a lot of the time in the development of a psychopath, the somebody is born, and for whichever reason, they have this um, d- uh, borderline personality disorder. Which is what? I don't know. Yeah, it's just, like, antisocial disorder. Okay. Um, it kind of... Uh, it's I uh, I'm not the most well read in the specifics of it. Okay. But essentially it puts other people at odds with them. It can manifest uh you know, a lack of empathy sometimes okay. or uh, alienation. Um
0: alienation from other people. Yeah. Lack of empathy for other people.
1: Yeah, which I, I think probably
0: was, very self-centered.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh with with in with those that kind of creates like a dangerous variable, mm. so to speak. And somebody with BPD is not in themselves dangerous. But the their brain chemistry can put them at risk to uh, develop harmful tendencies. Okay. Um, and so somebody with BPD, they can be completely well adjusted and engaged in the community. But when they're not offered the help that they need, and a traumatic event happens mm. to them, that can trigger this uh, kind of shift into developing into a psychopath. Okay. Um, wherein they largely, uh, you know, uh, morality kind of tends to go out the window and. Uh, people who are uh, psychopaths, they tend to uh, lose all empathy. They view themselves entirely apart from other people okay. um, and often will have their own goals and ambitions regardless of the morality of those things Okay, and pursue them uh, by all, any means necessary.
0: Wow. All. Okay. That sounds horrible. That really does. So I, I listened to a podcast recently and it was on these traits called The Dark Triad. And mm-hmm. this is my understanding of it. I actually had to listen to it twice to make sure that I get it. So this apparently happens in some people to the point where they say, oh, this is a triad of traits. And I believe they are psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And so the narcissism uh, sounds kind of like what you are mentioning before, which is everything revolves around me. And then the psychopathy is I really don't care anything about other people. Yeah. So me, me, me. Plus, I don't care about other people. And then the Machiavellianism was, is, hey, I will do whatever it takes in order to get my desires met. So that's where the morality can go straight out the window. Exactly. So, and, and I don't know, uh, like, what stops these people from, say, killing other people. Is it just fear of getting caught?
1: Uh, I think. That might be it. I I think sometimes, though, it can be as petty as that's not what somebody personally desires. Okay. They might have it in them to do that. It just
0: might not be their own personal preference. Mm -hmm. But if they want to do something else, like, I don't know, theft or, you know, office politics, wreck somebody else's career, (laughs) uh, they might do some of these horrible things.
1: Yeah. You know, it it very much, um, a lot of the time, almost anything can be on the table, and it really comes down to somebody's uh, personal desires. And,. Um, I think a really great example, okay. uh, is Iago from Shakespeare. Okay. Othello.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Go with that. Um, I read Othello a million years ago. So yeah. I, yeah, let's just briefly refresh people on the plot and then you could explain mm-hmm. Iago.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Othello, uh, centers, uh, uh, primarily on two men, uh, Othello, he's, uh, described as a more at the time, which basically means he's black and Iago is, uh, they they both, uh, Iago is, uh, one of his peers, they're yeah. both in the military. Yeah. Uh, and Othello, he's very accomplished. He's in a loving marriage. Um, for whichever reason, Iago decides he wants to ruin Othello. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Maybe Othello's too good, and yeah, mm-hmm. I- Oth- and Iago's just like, you know what the heck, I just want to destroy this guy.
1: Yeah, and, okay. and so then Iago, um, and he might even express this, I can't recall, he says, like, oh, I don't know, you know, he did something wrong to me, and you know. For whichever reason, I want to destroy this man. So Yeah, he, uh, socially sabotages him. You know, he spreads rumors. He um, he uh, thwarts uh, Othello's relationship with his wife. You know, he will. He, he makes it look as though his wife is cheating on mm. Othello with. I, I think it might be with Iago. Okay. And, and he does all these various things to kind of make Othello doubt his own. Uh, beliefs, uh, okay. what he perceives as reality, and uh,
0: he's an early gaslighter.
1: Yeah, he basically, <laughs> he, yeah, he gaslights fellow and it leads to this, uh, and, and manipulates him, and leads to this horrible climax where okay. Othello kills his wife. And uh, jeez. Iago comes out on top, sort of I think he gets caught at the end.
0: Yeah, probably because Shakespeare has kind of a reoccurring a virtue is rewarded and vice is punished. Yeah. But the difference between the tragedies and the other plays is usually in the tragedies all the good guys die. Yeah. You know, so it's not just like the bad guys die. I mean it's the good guys die. You know, so I, I don't remember the ending of the play. I read it thirty years ago, but Okay, so are you saying Othello dies at the end of the play?
1: Yeah, he ends up uh, killing and, himself, and
0: his wonderful wife Desdemona, who, I, if I remember correctly, she's just a just a wonderful person mm-hmm. in every regard. So, so the good guys die, and, yeah. and Iago probably gets punished because that's what Shakespeare does. Like bad people do get punished, and order is restored. That's yeah. like a perpetual theme at the end of Shakespeare, but. But the tragedy aspect is an acknowledgement that you know sometimes life is really brutal, mm-hmm. you know, because what did Othello or Desdemona do to deserve any of this?
1: Yeah,
2: nothing, nothing yeah,
0: it's but insane. okay, so then Iago is is he your example of a psychopath?
1: Yeah, because Iago he picks a target he uh, he sees Othello okay uh, he from some unknown motive, he decides that he's going to ruin othello's life mm. um and i think that motive is a largely narcissistic one so okay. he you know you, you already see psychopathy and narcissism at, yeah like, and then he kind of really takes this machiavellianism and does uh whatever it takes to yeah to and, get there yeah to get there that includes uh manipulating uh othello into killing his wife so that way othello kills himself at the end of the story yes um and so iago is a really uh, clear example of a psychopath okay um and so then, I guess to kind of bring it a little back to what we were talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. Uh, with uh, psychology, because I, I would, um, I would be very interested in that from a clinical perspective. Okay, but I would also um,
0: like to, to just really pin down in a clinical way why does, why do people turn to
1: this? Exactly, I would want to. Um, I think the uh, intellectual uh, forefront of psychology is there's a lot going on there. Um, Freud was a very important but largely I I disagree with a lot of what he says. He says he claims that religion is a mental illness. Mm. Uh, He claims that humanity uh, functions on the pleasure principle and the death drive, which is basically uh, experiencing carnal pleasure and killing yourself or the people around you uh, for the sake of experiencing carnal pleasure. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's very very brutal, very, like, Kind of
0: animalistic. Yeah. Well, actually, that's kind of doing a disservice to animals because, like, dogs (laughs) probably aren't running around just wanting to kill themselves or something.
1: Yeah, and I think it um, really—Freud's idea there really contradicts some Aristotelian and Catholic notions um, that—at the beginning of the metaphysics, Aristotle claims that all men by nature desire to know— which I think really gets closer to the uh, nature of humanity.
0: Yeah. Um, I remember Aristotle saying that humanity's greatest pleasure is to learn, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the equivalent of what you just said.
1: Exactly. And and I think with those principles in mind, I'd want to help uh, participate in the intellectual understanding of psychology. Okay. uh, Kind of refute some Freudian ideas and uh, help... Put forth uh, new ideas and try to understand you know these various disorders or occurrences okay. in humanity from that perspective
0: well what what do you think causes uh I guess some of these disorders or if, or if we want to just like narrow it down to psychopathy mm-hmm. uh what what do you think causes this or or as a twenty year old maybe you don't want to guess <laughs> just right now because I don't think I want to guess necessarily what yeah. causes um But has your education helped you in any regard trying to figure out what causes these things in people?
1: I I think uh, two main ways it's helped me so far is kind of coming to my own understanding of human nature, Okay, of this uh, knowing creature who Mm. generally desires to do good things, but for whichever reason, whether theological or philosophical, is inclined to do bad things at times. Okay. Um, Okay,
0: so you're basically defining human beings as basically good. Mm-hmm. They want to know things, and they want to do good
1: things.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But we're not perfect, so that would be the corruption of those things, and then that leads us to, I guess, do bad things. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of the principle of human nature that Tac's helped me. Okay. Uh, reach, and then also with like you know critical thinking and developing these ideas, Tac's giving me that tool, uh, which is kind of. Um, I, I haven't read as much Freud and Young as I've wanted to, but I, I, you know, I've got them sitting on my desk at home. As, right. You know, I'm brushing up on my ideas. You know, yeah. Kind of uh, seeing what they say and thinking about that. Um, but so, with those tools in mind, um, and, and kind of what I've read online and from Freud and such, uh, what I want to say with psychopaths, you you essentially get a psychopath by having a vulnerable individual. Okay. Um, and uh, Something terrible happens to them, okay. such that that individual's uh, notions of reality and what, uh, basic, yeah, what, what, their notions of reality are disruptive mm. in such a manner that it leads them to become a psychopath. Okay, so maybe that uh, notion, you know, they aren't human. Okay, or the people around them aren't human. They, you know, they draw that conclusion. Okay, or they draw the conclusion that there is no such thing as morality, and that you know it's them against the world. Okay. Um, I think those are the sorts of conclusions that people, that vulnerable individuals uh, draw that lead them to become psychopath.
0: Okay, so, gosh, hey, I'm just trying, are there any examples that you know of in history? I mean, you Mm. mentioned Iago, but Iago doesn't have a motive. Yeah. I mean, so, do you know of any cases, like, I don't know what, you know, somebody out there, a Ted Bundy or somebody... You know who? I guess we could maybe classify this way and and try to figure out like what their origin is.
1: Yeah, I think. Um,
0: I guess examples of what you just said.
1: Yeah, I, I think one could be Hitler. Okay. Uh, possibly, okay. he came from a broken home. Okay. Um, you know his his parents. Uh, his dad was abusive. His dad was also practicing Christian. So already you have a, a violation of natural order. right. His father is attacking his son. Um, which shouldn't happen. Generally, right. Fathers ought to care for their sons. Right. So there's a natural notion being challenged right there. Okay. And then Christianity is largely a place where people seek uh, virtue and morality from. So that's uh, he's seeing something sacred be being tainted by okay. his father's behavior. Um, so that puts Hitler in a very uh, vulnerable uh, place already. And then you know he. He tries to go to art school and he's terrible at it, and right. uh, he gets rejected in that way. So he's been rejected by his father. He's been rejected by the institutions that he wants to participate in. Mm. And Germany is in a very fragile social political okay. situation from World War One, um, and uh, it's it's all right. it's in the dumps, you know. Right. Um, so right. So he wants uh, Hitler. He want he wants power. Okay. Um, he wants to be the new top dog. I almost want to say that his father, his relationship with his father leads him to the desire uh, dominance to a certain degree. Okay. Uh, he wants, you know, nobody can hurt the guy who's on top. Okay. Um, but also he blames, you know, these various populations, the Jewish people, uh, the Romani, uh, Catholics, Christians, uh, homosexuals, the Slavs. He blames, you know, Germany's... Uh,
0: Animes. Yeah. External. Like other countries,
1: exactly. He really just um, he blames those uh, vulnerable groups of people to uh, realize his means uh, to to be. Well, they become the means to his ends of seizing power and putting Germany in a better spot than it was previously.
0: Wow! Wow. Okay. So I've I've teach a class in World War II Mm -hmm. and have tried to dig a little bit into his background, Um, and I think that a lot of historians. Wouldn't disagree with what you just said, but they also are very careful to point out that lots of people came from that background, but they didn't start World War II and, and murder, you know, millions of people. Um, so, but I guess that's that's just the quirks of individuality, I yeah. suppose, you know, like th- this man is in a pressure cooker, um, responds to things very badly, uh, makes some of his own choices, etc. And then, I guess we wind up with with this historical figure of total evil.
1: Yeah, and he, uh, for whichever reason, he happened to have the um, me, the, the available means to uh, realize that. Maybe he wouldn't have been, you know, uh, right, a, a wannabe world ruler. Um, okay, had he not had certain opportunities. But okay, uh, it strikes me that he had the right opportunities. Well, right in a very qualified. Yeah, sense. Yeah, it was yeah, very bad what happened, but he yeah. had. Uh, opportunities at the advantageous time that would allow him to uh, exact evil on the world in the way that he did.
0: You know, I feel like you're getting, are you covering this in class or is this something that you read on your own? Because uh, I, I feel yeah. either way, it just feels like you're getting a good education because at least you're grappling with complicated things.
1: Yeah, I think- um, Like
0: we're we're never really going to truly know no, in yeah. this particular case because we can't get inside the man's head. Yeah, Even if he wrote 10 books, which he didn't, we still couldn't get inside of his head. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of psychologists and historians who would love to, who would really love to understand the ins and outs of his personality. And people have definitely tried. And here you're grappling with it. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like that's what a good college education does, is it poses questions. I, I mean, I get a little nervous and uncomfortable talking about it, to be entirely honest. But, but it's, it's just good that you're, you're able to grapple with this and pose these questions.
1: Yeah, I think um, we haven't dealt with those topics themselves. Okay. Uh, but uh, in the student body, there's a lot of uh, intellectual discussion. Uh, okay. You're going to go sit there at lunch, and somebody's going to be like, well, what do you think about the notion of grace? And is, is hell a just punishment? You know, you're going to get hit with that question. Oh, wow. I, Whoa. You know, but uh, that's just kind of how the student body functions. Okay. So you're always engaging in those conversations. Um, and so the TAC kind of fosters that in uh, a, an intellectual environment and you're always uh, engaging in critical thinking. Okay. And okay. You do get exposed to notions of, of virtue and uh, just governments. Uh, next year is actually going to be a lot of political theory. Oh, and, okay. Uh, uh, ethics, um, and I'm very excited for that. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of like you know you get acquainted with the ideas that lead you to draw t- to to think in those ways to grapple with those questions, and then. Um, yeah, so I think TAC, it's helped me learn how to think, and it's giving me a, the right settings. But I also, um, you know, then when you have those tool, two, two tools, you just kind of go and you find what interests you, and you read about it, and you'd be like, all right, well, I've got this idea. Let's then you just dive it. in.
0: Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so psychology is a big interest for you, um, but you're not quite sure, like, maybe what type of counselor or therapist you want to be just yet. Yeah. What, what's, what's in the running?
1: I think... Um, uh, it, it would probably be something related to um, uh, individuals with antisocial disorders. Okay. Or, like uh, helping them. Yeah. Helping
0: them not to be so antisocial or non empathetic.
1: Exactly. Got that it. or um, people who have trauma to under. Oh, okay. Trauma is very uh, fascinating. Well,
0: let's let's talk about that for a little bit because I, I feel like, just especially over the last two years, uh, you know, 2020, 21, 22. I feel like, obviously, there's just a lot of people who have gone through a lot of pain Mm -hmm. worldwide, and so I I feel like these issues of trauma, if people are looking for discussions on them, there's lots of discussions Mm -hmm. on them that that are going on out there. Um, So, yeah, let's talk about that for a little bit.
1: Yeah, trauma is very fascinating. Okay. Essentially... Uh, when somebody is traumatized, they experience some sort of life-altering event. Okay, uh, you know, a uh, veteran or a soldier goes off to war and sees something terrible, or okay. somebody is abused in the home, or uh, something like that. Okay, you know, something that shouldn't happen has happened.
0: Right, and something it, awful happened, mm-hmm. and a secondary understanding I is, that I've heard is is that, and the person's defenses are just simply overwhelmed.
1: It, exactly, it's. The way that it happens, either the thing itself or the extent to which it happens uh, really damages. Because it
0: could be be. two soldiers go to war Mm -hmm. and both of them see something that's very, very, very terrible. And one comes back and is troubled by it, but basically can function and laugh again. Mm -hmm. But then the other one is very, very traumatized and maybe needs all kinds of counseling and help. And why is this? Why do we have two different reactions? Well, that's just the difference in people.
1: Yeah. You know, people,
0: that's all. It doesn't mean like one person's better or one person's worse. It, it just means that for whatever particular reason, this partic- particular situation just happened to overwhelm the defenses of the second person.
1: Yeah, it, exactly. Some people are more apt to process some things than other people are. And so that um, that leads to... Uh, Usually when somebody's traumatized, they, uh, their brain will almost, uh, they'll disassociate from the event. Okay. So that way okay. they, they still can, the, the memory still exists within them and the event still occurred to them. But in some level, because it was so overwhelming, okay. that the consciousness of that person pulled back. Mm. So that way they don't, that way they weren't totally broken by that. Okay. Um,
0: Do they feel like maybe it happened to somebody else?
1: Sometimes, okay. Um, and so from there, you have this situation where there is an unprocessed memory which exists within the psyche of a person. Okay. Um, and because it's unprocessed, it uh, still affects them. Usually, that person still feels as though they're in that event. Mm. Um, and some people have thought that this is an exclusively psycho, uh, not uh, an exclusively mental, you know, uh, metaphysical occurrence. But a lot of science shows that it largely uh, affects the brain chemistry and the, the way somebody's okay. brain is mapped out and can even affect like their, their whole body.
0: Uh, okay. I mean, there's books out there with titles like The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. And I haven't read it. I read one that was recommended at the same time called Childhood Disrupted. And the basic idea is that trauma actually gets lodged in your body.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and then Childhood Disrupted made about 15 or 16 specific suggestions for getting it lodged out of your body. I don't know what to make of all this scientifically, mm-hmm. you know, but a lot of their things where it's like, hey, do some prayer, do some meditation, consider going to hypnosis, uh, just all kinds of things. Do mindfulness practices, uh, do uh, various stretching or yoga, something like that. I, the idea, basically, I I don't know what to make of any of this. Yeah. W- what have you read? what are, What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. So I've um, I've read a lot of uh, clinical articles. Okay. Um, uh, That's cool. Yeah. I wish
0: I would have done that.
1: <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun, um, and it's really fascinating because okay. you do kind of um, it. The. It's interesting, actually, because uh, Aristotle talks about the intellect and the mind. Okay. Uh, one thing that we read this past year was uh, De Anima, or uh, Concerning the Soul, um, wherein Aristotle argues that the actual intellect, the actual mind of somebody, is not the organ itself, not the brain, but it's something that's attached to the soul of that person. Okay. And the brain, that organ, is the meeting point between the body mm. and the soul. Okay. Okay. Um, And so somebody's brain is how the soul uses its intellect in a way to, you know, learn about the world um, or to process events. Okay. Um,
0: Is he kind of saying, like, I don't know, the brain is the hardware and the mind or the soul is the software?
1: Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Got it. So you kind of have this relationship between, like, you know, it does make sense to a certain degree to think that trauma only affects somebody in a mental way. Yes. You know, in in their uh, intellect but it does have a meeting point with the yeah. body in the mind.
0: If it's part of your brain chemistry, well, then it's probably going to be in the rest of your body. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Exactly. So those things, yeah, those things that are in there are going to affect your body. So, you know, a trauma isn't just going to affect your mind, but it's going to be because of the nature of the mind's relationship with the body. Okay. It is going to necessarily affect the body either to um you know have usually just physical symptoms for somebody. Okay. Um and so then trauma kind of like takes on a physical nature. Okay. as well.
0: Well, w- without us giving medical advice to anybody, which I can't do <laughs> at all, even slightly. Um how do people get over a trauma?
1: Yeah, there's um sometimes talk therapy works for people. Okay. um but I've also read about uh these uh, two techniques called uh, EMDR. Which is, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, actually
0: interviewed a friend. Um, her name is Christy Dalkey, and that's an earlier episode. Oh, uh, nice. And that's what she does. She's a, a PhD, and she helps veterans. And she does EMDR. Mm-hmm. So
1: it, it's incredibly fascinating because the uh, body, pro- the way the way you dream is your eyes just move back and forth you know, rapid eye movement. Yes, that's how the body uh, processes. That's well, that's how the mind. Processes, memories of the day, and you know the rest of your psychology, okay. your body, um, and so uh, I uh, like your uh, your friend, uh, Doctor Christy Dalkey. Doctor Christy Dalkey, you know she's going to uh, stimulate somebody's eyes, make them move in a certain way with her finger to simulate that while discussing a trauma to process that. Um, And then the individual kind of re-experiences the trauma in a safe environment such that they can understand what happened to them.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. So that's, yeah, okay. I guess in a nutshell, that's what she's doing. She's talking them through it, but she's also giving their body something to do. Mm -hmm. And then that allows both the body and the mind to essentially process what happens.
1: Exactly. they okay. back the tapes.
0: Now, if it's um, processed, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean, hey, I'm over it, if it's yeah. processed?
1: I, I think it's a bit of a, I don't think you want to quite say I'm over it, so uh-huh. to speak, because with um, trauma, there is still, like, a wound. You right. Know, there, there's some sort of emotional wound. Okay. But uh, the individual now has the advantage mm. of their brain has grasped the event. Um, you know, at first when they experienced that event, you know their consciousness pulled back so that way they weren't right. broken by it. But now right. their consciousness has been able to re-enter into that event uh, in a way that it understands what happened and it uh, sees it.
0: Okay, this makes sense because if if we're going to define trauma as your senses or your your mind getting overwhelmed by what happened, then with EDMR and and talk therapy, then I guess we're reliving it, but we're no longer overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. It's okay, so we're we're able to cope with it, yeah, just a little bit better.
1: Exactly, because typically when somebody doesn't process an event, it's almost like it's occurring on a loop. Oh, in okay,
0: their mind. it just because your brain is probably trying to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Your brain is probably trying to fix the problem somehow, uh, and so that's why we wind up just like repeating and repeating and repeating something over and over again.
1: Yeah, like the veteran he, he thinks he's still on the battlefield because okay. his brain hasn't processed that event yet. Okay. So he lives as if that as though he were on the battlefield. Okay. And on the battlefield, you know, his you know, being extra paranoid and having a certain degree of aggression uh, is, you know, that that's okay. necessary for survival. But in civilian life, that's not necessary no. any longer. No. So it becomes important that you process those, those events to detransition from that mode of living.
0: Yes. Okay. Okay. Wow. This is really cool. So I could see you wanting to help people overcome their traumas. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's is, is that kind of where you're leaning, do you think? Or that one's yeah. in the running?
1: Yeah, part of it. I, I think uh, I would be interested in that. Okay. You know, it, it's good to help people. Yeah. But, um, well,
0: and this would be maybe one of the best ways to help people.
1: Yeah. i Well, I'm really um, fascinated in is trauma is usually the inciting incident to make a psychopath a psychopath. Okay. It's usually what moves somebody beyond them. Okay.
0: Is that established?
1: Uh, I, I think so. Okay. At least it's a very popular idea. Okay. Um, okay. And so I... I would be really interested to uh, kind of understand that the relationship between the person and trauma, especially with uh, BPD in the mix. Um, okay. I understand psychopaths. But then um, to kind of pivot away from that for a second in another yeah uh, uh, respect with participating in psychology, uh, you know, bearing in mind Freudian ideas. Yeah. And how they're not necessarily right. Um I've encountered a lot of Catholics who think that psychology is in of itself uh, heretical because there are okay. heretical ideas at play, uh, which is... Well,
0: I mean, I think you're going to get that with psychology just because as far as I can tell, it is a very splintered field. Yeah. It's- you know, you've got your Freudians, you've got your Jungians, you've got like uh, your cognitivists, you've got your behaviorists, although the cognitive and behavior people kind of get together from time to time. You've mm-hmm. got evolutionary psychology, you've got neuropsychology which looks at chemicals in your brain and what they're doing uh so i mean that's about five or six different schools of thought and yeah. uh some of them get along about as well as capitalism and communism
1: yeah basically it, yeah it's an infantile field and so there's yeah. a lot of bad ideas running amok, and there's good ideas running among. right and people um, are the
0: most complicated thing going
1: they, they, yeah it's you can never fully understand a person. Right, Um, right, right, right. Some people, unfortunately, look at the bad ideas and how young the field is, and so they write the whole thing off, Oh, okay. Which is damaging, because psychology, most fundamentally, is just seeking to understand people.
0: Right. Well, yeah, what do you do instead, then? If you, like, uh, do you just write off understanding people?
1: Right, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, So uh, one thing that I would like to do would be to kind of help contribute to psychology and clarify what psychology is from a Catholic perspective. Oh. So that way other Catholics can meaningfully meaningfully participate in it. Um, Catholicism for the longest time was one of the most intellectual faiths of the world. Sure. You know, a Catholic was... There was like this degree of like Catholic intellectual excellence, um, which I think unfortunately is lost because most people aren't very intellectual today. Okay. Um, They consume things and they go about their day and they... uh, I, I think the education system has been tarnished by people who've tried to leverage it you know your uh, industrialist who wanted to turn education into uh, a training facility okay. for factory workers is gotcha. people who should be learning um, so there's kind of this uh, aspect of intellectualism that's been lost to the world okay um so i would want to help kind of bring catholics to psychology In an intellectual way, with understanding, to help meaningfully participate in the development of the field.
0: Wow, that sounds like you're either going to be a professor or a marketer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, probably both.
0: (laughs) To like, yeah, get those ideas out there to people. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, Um, yeah, that's fascinating with psychology. Anything else we should say about psychology?
1: Psychology, it's a it's a good thing. Okay, generally. Okay,
0: very cool. Um, Where do you want to go with philosophy and or theology?
1: Yeah, I think with um, philosophy, uh, and I think theology would be wrapped up in it to some degree. Okay. You know, uh, a lot of uh, good philosophy, anyway, pursues, you know, the highest thing, which as Catholics, we believe to be God. So typically speaking, uh, philosophy can be a theological pursuit for some. Oh, of course. Um, And so with uh, philosophy, I'm really entranced by uh, Aristotle. Okay. He's hard to understand sometimes, but... When you understand him, he's largely right. He okay. He argues. Um, he starts with, you know, univer- uh, what he, a common experience. He starts with common experiences, and he argues uh, with other people uh, about uh, certain ideas. He's like, all right, so we all understand this thing or we know this thing to be this, so then we can make these conclusions through these various ways. Um, really, his ideas aren't that complex. He's just a bad writer. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, well, maybe he's got a bad translator. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it could be that
1: it could be, but um, so uh, for philosophy, for my own sake at least, uh, I I would want to really understand Aristotle in a more profound way as with a PhD in philosophy. But also, um, you know, there's a lot of notions of nihilism running around. Okay.
0: do you want to define nihilism for people?
1: Yeah, Nih- nihilism. I, to my understanding, um, I haven't read very m- many nihilistic writers. I will. Uh, okay. On my reading list. Okay. <laughs> um, You'll get there. But they're usually uh, people who argue that life in of itself has no inherent meaning. Mm. So therefore, nothing truly matters, and you cannot put a moral. Uh, you cannot hold people to a moral standard, which doesn't really work out in the long run. of things. Maybe. Okay. Um. And and then from there it came this kind of absurdist idea that well okay maybe not every maybe nothing matters but in some sense that means that everything matters you know just because there isn't um, meaning in life in of itself you can look for that meaning and you can define your own meaning and anything is on the table. Okay, I mean
0: isn't that what existentialism was? Wasn't existentialism mm-hmm. the belief that okay so we just had World War Two and it looks like Europe just burned itself to the ground? And uh, why would we do this? Uh, and then people would say, well, it's obvious because, you know, life has no meaning and humanity has no meaning. And just look at all this destruction and mayhem and, and I'm depressed. Yeah. You know, and so then some of that's, you know, kind of nihilistic. Like, hey, there's no meaning. There's no purpose. Well, so then existentialism, my understanding, comes along and says, well, what that means is you have to figure out your own personal meaning and purpose, Mm -hmm. you know, because you're still in the same situation. Like if you lived in a golden era, and if you were 20 years old, you would still have to figure out what's the meaning and purpose of my life. uh, Because it does seem to cause people despair if they don't have any meaning or purpose. Mm -hmm. So it's like people do have have a meaning and purpose. So whether you live in good times or bad times, existentialism would say, yeah, but it's all on you. Yeah, You have to figure out like, why am I here? What am I going to do? What is the meaning and purpose of my life? And so my understanding was, is that there were Christian existentialists as well. I mean, some of the existentialists were atheists and they said, Hey, nobody's going to give us meaning from the outside. You have to come up with it on your own. Well, then the Christian existentialists said in response, well, I have to freely choose, you know, a Christian way of being. Um, I, I just can't, like, have that handed to me because if I think, oh, this was handed to me, then I'm really just fooling myself. I still have to make my own decisions mm-hmm. on things. Am I getting this correct?
1: That sounds accurate. Okay. Because there is really something to what the Christian existentialists say about, you know, you do need to make that meaningful choice or else right. your faith isn't really worth it. Right.
0: Otherwise, it was just handed to you and you're not thinking about it and you're not deeply feeling it. Maybe you're just doing it because you think you have to.
1: Yeah. And, and then that just, that leads to an un, undeveloped faith and all these things. Um, yeah. But I, I uh, you know, the, the a lot of people, they kind of, they, they have bad things happen to them. Okay. And then they make the mistake of making their individual experience a universal experience. Yeah. So it is true that suffering does occur in every right. life to a certain right. degree. But suffering doesn't, you know, just because you may feel that your individual suffering makes your life suddenly meaningless, Yes, it doesn't. But even if that's how you feel, that doesn't mean that's how everybody feels, nor does that mean that's how it is for everybody else, which I think is a key mistake that uh, occurred in some Uh, of these ideas, is this, like, making an individual experience a universal one. Okay. Um,
0: Okay. Somebody has a very, very awful, rotten, bad experience, and it really... Dents their hope and their faith in life. Mm-hmm. So they then then maybe they think everybody's walking around with a dented faith in life. Yeah, got it.
1: Got and and it. then it's just it's this really damaging idea yeah. because then nothing yeah. matters. Yeah, even if you take an absurdist uh, uh, opinion on it, or, you know, if, even if you're an existentialist and look for your own meaning, you're doing that entirely on your own. Yes, uh, and it's there, there is nothing ultimately substantial to it. Mm. As, um. One thing that uh, some philosophers talk about, especially the Christian ones, you know, man was created from nothing. Okay. And it is man's nature as being created from nothing to decompose into nothing without the aid of God. Mm. So anything that you're ultimately going to come up with, that's insubstantial. That's going to corrupt at the end of the day. Okay. Um, and, and so when you kind of have this philosophy that it's on you to kind of come up with why everything should matter and why things are good, it's always going to fall short of what it could be.
0: Yeah, it's a little exhausting if you have to do all of the work of the entire universe and yeah. like establish all of the meaning, you know, for all of the millennia past and all the millennia in the future. Like, if you have to do that entirely on your own, that would be exhausting.
1: Mm-hmm. And especially as like a temporary person. whose yeah. Nature is yeah. to return unto dust.
0: Sure, I'm just this little person. If I live to be a hundred, well, then that's just a blip mm-hmm. in all of the millennia.
1: Yeah, and there's no telling that as a blip whether or not your idea will stick or whether or not it's a worthwhile idea. That's right. Um,
0: Well, and let's say I come up with ideas and they do stick. mm -hmm. Yeah, but so what? I mean, you know, I mean, if we're going to go with this like nihilistic or you know existentialist without God point of
2: view. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and then there's no telling. Like wow. The idea might not be
0: worthwhile. I'm going to be entirely honest. This is something that has really actually sustained me in my faith life because I think I was roughly about your age, and I ran across some of these ideas of like nihilism and existentialism and then Christian existentialism and so on. And I, I just sort of realized at a certain point that, okay, belief in God requires faith. They always say that, belief in God requires faith. But then it also struck me that belief in atheism also requires faith, because mm-hmm. you would have to prove to somebody that God doesn't exist for atheism to not require faith, Yeah, if that makes sense. And you can't prove that something doesn't exist.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's, I think, considered to be a negative proposition in logic. So a person can't prove God does exist, hence the need for faith. But you also can't prove that God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so then realizing all this when I was 20 just made me think, well, intellectually, you know, like some days I'm going to be happy, some days I'm going to be sad, some days I'm going to be ecstatic, other days I'm going to be in the pit of despair. But intellectually, it just makes more sense to me that there is a God and that everything didn't occur by accident. And then plus, I have these notions of right and wrong. Yeah. I have like this conscience and it's giving me these notions of right and wrong. And yes, I get that I got those from my parents and they got them from their parents. But there were some deviations along the way, right? Like mm-hmm. not everybody agreed with the exact same thing if you go back enough generations. So I thought, where did everything come from? And where did my ideas of conscience come from? And then I thought, well, they either came from God or they just randomly exist. Yeah. And the random existence thing just seemed... I don't know, kind of ridiculous, but not just ridiculous, like a cause for like despair mm-hmm. for me because I thought, well, if the purpose of my life is to get old and maybe be like a hundred years old and then to pass away, mm, that doesn't seem so fun, you know. Um, I don't know. I think my thoughts are maybe a mixture of complex and shallow, um, and probably not terribly well expressed. But but just running across that at the age of twenty was just Monumental for me because my whole life it's just made it easy to believe in God. It really has. It's made it very easy to believe in God.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because
0: the alternative just seems too horrible to contemplate.
1: Right, and it doesn't seem fitting for you if you look at everything as it is. Yeah, things nature has a harmony to it. Yeah, behaves in a certain way as do humanity. Yeah, you know everything just kind of it, it kind of works and it doesn't. It is somewhat like, you know, it's an easy, it's not the most well developed proof for it, but it's like, well, it's more fitting for there to be a God. Yes. who's orchestrated things than for there yes.
0: not to be. Well, I want to ask you, uh, because you're 20, um, mm-hmm. I think when I was your age, Gallup did a poll and it asked people, do you believe in God? And something like 95% of the population in America said, yes, we believe in God. Um, I don't think that number is as high today. Yeah. But, but what is your point of view, uh, being your age and having had your life experiences?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I, I certainly believe in God. And I think that, you know, he's, you know, he, he makes the most sense. But I think... Um,
0: yeah, well, what's the general public out there doing? Or do you yeah, have any idea?
1: I think uh, a lot of people kind of have thrown away ideas of God. Um, and I think it's largely from these uh, undeveloped, Arguments. It's, okay. Or, or it's from these, it's like this, you know, it's the individual experience. Like, uh-huh. I knew a bad priest.
0: Right. Catholicism is a shame. Okay.
1: Like, it doesn't work that way, you know? Uh, I, I that people of, are
0: making these decisions based on this individual or that individual.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of, kind of, they, they take it from their personal experience to too much of a degree. Okay. And they discredit, you know, they discredit Catholicism okay. or the idea of religion. Okay. So not only do they have a bad personal experience, but they think that this is all silly. So they don't take the arguments uh, put forth by uh, members of that institution seriously um, so they're like, yeah, well, not only are they wrong and stupid, but this bad thing happened to me in regards to this mm. institution. Uh, there's, I shouldn't trust it. There's no reason for me okay. to trust it.
0: Well, what do, what do you think the, I guess, the ethos of the population is, especially in yeah. your age bracket, if it's possible to answer that question?
1: I, I think it, it really, may not be. Yeah, I, I think... From what I understand, it really comes down to this um, absurdist existential notion that, well, okay. nothing matters uh, <coughs> in of itself, so I'm going to go make my own meaning for things and, mm. you know, forget whoever gets in my way. um There, wow. there, is, um, there is an attractive notion. To absurdism and these ideas that there is no uh, inherent morality to things because when you don't believe that there is a right or a wrong, you can do whatever you want You can yeah. engage in whichever pleasures you want you can do what it, you can drink as much as you want you can eat as much as you want uh, you have no obligation to Did, the old Do you lady feel down the like
0: people in your age bracket are thinking that?
1: I, I think so I think that there's this like um, selfish notion okay. um, but also it's kind of depressing. Um, because it really does come from places of hurt, or from places mm. of being failed. Okay, uh, I think uh, a lot of educational institutions and uh, parental figures have failed a lot of people today. Okay, and if uh, they haven't cared enough to educate them, or to, uh, you know, help them explore, you know, the way things are, or to think about why things are the okay. way they are. Uh, you know, they kind of leave it up to the schools, and the schools leave it up to the parents, and you know, they leave it up to some sort of textbook or their kid. Okay. And it, you know, their fourteen-year-old kid barely understands the world. Um, you know, for, to say, uh, from a Jungian perspective, they're still developing their consciousness. Yes. You now that that kid doesn't know any of what's going on, they can barely comprehend what's going on. You know, they're but they're being the they're being left to sort out how the world works on their own. On their own. Yeah. The schools are abandoning them. The parents are abandoning them. So then they just kind of, you know, muck about. They're mm. depressed. And they're like, well, I'm depressed. And everybody else is probably depressed. <laughs> uh, you know, these things make me feel good. And I'm being told not to do them uh, by this institution. So that institution is wrong because feeling good is good. Uh, so I'm going to go feel good. I'm going to forget all that. Wow. Uh, the institutions.
0: Well, isn't there, to a certain degree, though, uh, kind of an ethos among younger people that, hey, we need to do good things. We need to be idealistic. That's we need true. to also- save the environments. We need to save the other people. We need to save the world.
1: Yeah, a lot of uh, young people also have this like grandiose notion that all altogether okay. somehow uh, they're going to fix the world uh, despite none of them having you know, developed ideas or okay. they, they don't have a unifying ideological front. Uh, they end up accidentally falling into Marxism okay decide that nothing matters but they want to make the world better because they they do recognize that there are evils at the very least okay so they feel good about making things better so they get together with all their uh uh peers okay all right we're going to oppose this thing at whatever cost uh we're going to it going to do it very poorly because we don't know how to do this and we haven't thought very deeply about it and we're not going to try to engage in the intellectual side of things um and so then they end up trying to fix things, but they do it in a very poor way. Is is
0: this why you are thinking a combination of psychology, theology, and philosophy? Because <laughs> you would basically like to just help people, perhaps on a grand scale, if you possibly can.
1: That'd be nice, pro- probably, honestly. Because okay. It was. I think these, when when I was younger, I did. You know, I I found myself like vulnerable to some of those ideas. Okay. You know? I think it's a very natural thing as a teenager. Like,
0: like which ones? Like the like, hedonism or the Marxism or the something a elseism. Bit of
1: the Marxism and okay. know, ideas of, you know. Well,
0: okay. How are you defining Marxism?
1: Uh, for, so for Karl Marx, um, yeah. he he really argued that um, all forms of authority are uh, in some form of oppression, and oppression is. Utterly evil, and so therefore we must oppose authority, and we must do so by any means necessary. Okay, wouldn't that make him an
0: anarchist then? Like, just tear everything down.
1: Uh, somewhat. He also had these notions of a state. I think. Okay. Um, I'm re. Uh, Marx is either in my curriculum next year or the year after. Okay. Um, but really, Marx, he comes at this angle of destroy, you know, uh, eradicate oppression, and do it how do it however you need to.
0: Okay, well, um, if there's a state in there, I here's what I'm hearing you say. Um, tear down the current everything mm-hmm. and then rebuild something new and the new thing will be beautiful. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, and... and That's going to be hard to do. Right? <laughs> well, I guess when you're when you're young and you're ideal, idealistic... And, well, it sounds great. It, right? Because you, you, know? you see an evil thing and you're like, well... You know, tear it down. Yeah, I'm young. I can do anything. I'm going to go tear that down. Right. And so some of those notions were a little attractive to me. Um, and, and then I... Then I kind of got more involved with theology, and I was like, okay. no, that's silly. That's silly. Okay, we
0: can't just tear down everything. We
1: can't. No, we need God. And, and there is there there, in my, there is a beauty to um, order to in a certain degree. I, okay. I want to be very careful there. I'm not an authoritarian by yeah, any Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I well, to, I didn't think that you were. Yeah, but I want to, for the for the listeners at home, <laughs> when I say there's a beauty in order... <laughs> right,
0: we're not, we're, the order is not code for establishing like a no. one-party dictatorship
2: or something. Oh, yeah, no.
1: Yeah. No, because you do need to have free will involved. But, um, the, the, you know, the, you really ought to have some form of governance. Um, and I think you really see that through God. God yeah. himself is, in some way, you can say God himself is a form of governance for humanity. Oh, sure. Um, and sure. so, God, we're not really, you know, we can't listen to God individually. We, we, need, we do need to have people who help us live a good life.
0: Um, I, I have very simple ideas, and I express <laughs> them very simply. And so I, I'll leave it to smarter people or people who are just going through a wonderful education like you're going through uh, to just correct my ideas. But I guess my first one is is uh, I, I do think that there is a God. And I think God loves us, and I think love is defined as trying to do what's in the best interest of the other person. So I think God wants us to be happy, and God wants us to thrive. Um, And then I think we have some rules that we follow, and these are the Ten Commandments. And that's really not a lot. I mean, actually, it's too much, because people like break them every single day by (laughs) accident. There's commandment against lying, but you know, people lie all the time to make somebody else feel good. Like somebody says, how do I look today? And then other people say, (laughs) you look great. You look absolutely fantastic. You know, somebody could ask me how I sound. and Then, you know, maybe, you know, somebody would say, well, you sound just fine. No, I don't. I sound just a little hoarse or whatever. But so anyway, there's, we can't even follow like the 10 rules that we have. And and I think this is maybe why God doesn't have like 500 rules or 5,000 rules or... A million rules, just because we're having a hard enough time with the 10 that we have. Mm-hmm. So I think God loves us. The, the rules are mostly here, as far as I understand it, to keep us safe, to keep us happy, uh, but also to give us a lot of freedom. Yeah. You know, that's, that's and then in terms of like order versus chaos, uh, I, I view both of those words positively. I do. I mean, some people use chaos as a negative thing, but I, I view it as a synonym for creative or fun Mm -hmm. and so like too much order means no creativity that's true now on the other hand too much chaos means uh well do i get up today at seven or do i not get up at all do i get up at like four in the afternoon do i go into work today or do i just chase butterflies through the yard you know so like i i've got to have some order and i've got to have some creativity otherwise i don't feel like i can be fully human yeah. So I think those are my simple ideas.
1: Absolutely, I <laughs> I, I think I'm inclined to agree. Okay, but,
0: yeah. but I'm sure there's a more sophisticated way and a deeper way. Oh
1: yeah, there there always is though. Okay, when, even when you have a very sophisticated idea, it can get more sophisticated. Okay,
0: well, and I'm sure you're you're also learning things in college that I wish I knew.
1: <laughs>
0: so, Peter, this has just been absolutely fantastic. I'm I'm not. Sure. Uh, gosh, what else should I have asked
1: this entire time that I, I didn't ask?
0: Or what do you wish that you would have had a chance to say that I rudely interrupted you? Oh,
1: no worries. No, I um, I think, oh, one thing that's interesting, um, I, with, with that writing group I mentioned earlier, yeah. this summer we're uh, all embarking on a novella project. Oh, Um so I, I don't want to say too much about what okay. my novella is in case I do ever get to release it. Why? Well, I mean,
0: a novella is like a certain length, right? Yeah, it's like, like it's like a short novel. It's like about a hundred pages, maybe.
1: Yeah, uh, Animal Farm is okay. uh, a novella. Yeah, um, and so uh, we've I've got this one about uh, uh, outsmarting uh, Greek notions of gods according to the will of a higher god with uh, r- romance and wars and. All this stuff. Um, wow! Is very exciting. Wow! Um,
0: you came up with this idea. Yeah. Oh wow! I I think you need to get on this. Oh yeah, no, I really do.
1: I've been outlining it and writing it a little bit. Um, it's one that if it works out, I would love to show it to the you know grant uh, to the populace. You know, get it published yeah, or something. Absolutely. Um, and then, uh, to the listeners too, I know that Mister Webker also has his own things that he's writing. I um, do. I always I've, have something going on. Yeah. I'm hoping to read some of them this summer. Oh, well, um, thank you. As you all should as well. Thank you, thank
0: you. You're very kind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got a few things up on Amazon, but yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, okay, so let's fast forward. I guess this will be my last question. Let's fast forward 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just say life is working out in a beautiful way. Yeah. Where are you? What are you doing?
1: I think. In 15 years, if I could, I'd want to have uh, probably a doctorate in psychology and my master's of fine art, my, my MFA in creative writing, um, you know, I'm published. Uh, I'm helping make some adaptations into TV shows for my work. So, oh, cool. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, running a, you know, I, I uh, I've got some awards. I don't want to. I don't write for the awards, but it's always nice to get awards. Oh, sure. validates. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm making my bread and butter off of my, I'm making my living off of uh, writing, and I never have to work another day if I don't want to, or at least I'm very close to being in that position. You know, married uh, with a uh, lovely Catholic family, and um, if I could, I I would want to be a very cool Creative dad who brings cool ideas to the table and uh, helps, you know, make remarkable Catholics wow. uh, and citizens. Um, but most, um, I would love to be in a, a wonderful place with my faith, you know, always striving to be in a better place every day. Uh, and uh, I'd love to have the ideas up in my head uh, be out on the page for other people to read.
0: Wow. Peter, this has just been wild. Um, When we sat down, I really didn't have a clear idea of where we were going. And and it just seems like uh, school has been very good to you. Yeah. And it's just treated you so very well. And you are so articulate and you've become so deep on so many different subjects. And uh, your, your spirit of life is just contagious. And I'm just really, really happy that we've done this. And I hope we can do this again. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you can do for me would be for you to post a review in Apple or Spotify. Nothing helps a podcast pop up higher in the ratings than a positive review. Thank
2: you again.